Welcome to Subject to Power. I'm El Kamihira. Excuse the horrible quality of my voice today. I'm just recovering from a pretty brutal case of COVID, which is also the reason this episode is a little late. I hope the interview you're about to listen to will make up for all of that. This is the third installment of my series with research scholar of all things matriarchy and founder of Hagia Academy of Modern Matriarchal Studies, Heide Gottner Abendroth. I have just soaked up so much invaluable knowledge from her of the kind you don't learn in school about women's true role in history. In past episodes, we've covered Haida's work on modern matriarchies, as well as the history of matriarchal societies in ancient Europe and West Asia. In this episode, we are going to talk about how that all ended, about how the first small cells of patriarchy began and then grew and took hold in different parts of the ancient world, how it spread and destroyed former matriarchal cultures, and how patriarchal patterns have shaped the world we live in today and the millennia since. We are also going to talk about the resistance that matriarchal cultures put up. So it's not all it's not all darkness. <laughs> Enjoy the conversation. Do you have festivals at Hagia, like annually? Yes, you see, I, I'm not only working as a researcher, but also as a spiritual leader. And on the basis of my matriarchal studies, especially in European mythology, I created the matriarchal mystery festivals where I try to revive old European traditions and celebrate a cycle of eight festivals every year. We do it here in Eastern Bavaria, and usually we do it with German-speaking people who come from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. I never had the plan when I began, but matriarch societies are spiritual societies, and one day it, how to say that, it, it catched me, mm -hmm. and I had mm -hmm. to do it. Oh, that's very nice. We're going to be talking in this third installment of our interview series, we're going to be talking about something much less joyous than, yes. <laughs> than that. We're going to be talking about finally sort of the patriarchalization of Europe and Asia, which you wrote a book about. There is so much material to talk about that I don't know mm -hmm. if, how much we're going to get to. Well, we try our best. We try our best. Yeah, exactly. So you describe it in waves that took place over many thousands of years. I want to try to sort of paint a picture of these movements, where it started, how we got started, what led to what, and kind of like dig into all the details. Maybe we can start with the early Indo-European cultures and how they became patriarchal. And in particular, I want to focus on the influence of climate change on that process. Yes. If you allow me, I would like to say at the beginning some very important statements about the rise of patriarchy. We all know there are a lot of literature about it. I was never satisfied completely with these explanations. 
for most of the authors try to explain a worldwide change by only one factor. And this is not possible. We have to take into account that every different continent and every different countries in these continents, it happened in a different way and at different times. Sometimes it was very early, for example, in the old world, near West Asia, Europe, very early. But in the Americas, it was rather late. It started especially with the invasion of the white people, where many major art societies like the Iroquois League broke down. It was rather late. And the reasons are completely different why patriarchal patterns came up. So it, it's a big research task to explain how patriarchy came about in Europe, in West Asia, in East Asia, in Africa, in India, and in South and North America. It's so completely different. And all these trials to explain it in one time by one factor, these are pseudo-explanations. And uh, this is one thing I would like to, to emphasize at the beginning, and that it was not quick. It lasted thousands of years, it lasted millennia. You mentioned the other point. We have to go to the ground, to the basis. The basis where we're all living on is the earth. And if we have drastically changement in the environment, in the climate, this affects whole societies and all of what they are doing. And so I try to find out as the deepest reason how in these special regions or countries the climate affected changement of societies. Of course, as you have everywhere different environment and different climate developments, you have to explain also differently. Yeah, that nuance is so, so important and not to miss the complexity of it all. Yes, it's very complex. It's true. We have different kinds of patriarchies. For example, as I wrote in my book in Mesopotamia, we have completely different setting different reasons and a different development. But in the Eurasian steppe, which stretches from East Europe until Northern China, it's a huge region, there was a development, the beginning of special patriarchal patterns. For during thousands of years, this um, belt, the steppe belt, it was not steppe at all some thousand years ago. It was fertile green land, north of the Caucasus and other mountains, where small rivers came down, that there existed in Neolithic time agricultural societies. And you have these big rivers in the steppe, like Volga and other rivers, that everywhere were agriculture flourishing. But when this desiccation started by climate changes, dry and cold periods came and Warmer, more humid periods again, like the ice ages in the Paleolithic time, we have different ice ages in between warm periods. Similarly, it developed in Neolithic time in the steppes. And step by step, over thousands of years, this whole region uh, changed into steppe and even into desert. South of Caucasus and the other mountains, the Altai, all these Central Asian mountains, we have now desert, which never has been gathered before. This we have to take into account. Agriculture became impossible. Agriculture became impossible. And literally, the ground under the feet of the people dried out and they lost their former economy. And uh, these societies were uprooted and they lost their agriculture. They moved more and more to find anywhere green pastures for their 
for the animals. And when agriculture wasn't possible any longer, they more and more relied on the animals and more and more enlarged the herds. More and more. They changed slowly from agriculturalists to herders. And then they had to move around to find green pastures for their for the herds. But as we know today, an environment which was drying out, enlarging the herds is just the wrong answer. Truly the wrong answer. So they made the situation even worse, but they didn't know, of course. They had to try to survive. And of course, they had to move around more and more. And if you enlarge the herds more and more, you come to the point where you cannot any longer keep them together on foot. On foot, huge herd, no. In former times, there had been also hunters, herders and hunters, and it was usual for them to hunt the wild horses in the steppe. The steppe has lots of wild horses. Some of them found out that they can sit on the horses and then they are very quick. So in, they invented riding. It was an excellent invention, not purposely, but now they had the chance to keep their large herd together on horseback, like the cowboys in the US. Yeah, yeah. But the bad effect was that they now enlarged the herds even more. They spread and spread and put pressure more and more on their neighbors. And the technique of riding horses was adapted by the others. But the effect was that now they came into conflict. Conflict about the poor green pasture they could find. And moving around, the radius became broader and broader. But there were also other people whose radius became broader and broader. So they had conflicts. This is a development over thousands of years. When they came in conflict, they had to fight for the herds, which has been done by using the weapons against our humans, which is also a new invention. And it's interesting what you talk about, how women's role in society changed with this change. They changed from herders into herder warriors. And the next development, which was disastrous, and they fought against each other. And particularly disastrous for women, yeah? Yes, that's true. Disastrous for, for women and also other men. For, you see, agriculture was the domain of women since Neolithic times. And with agriculture and owning the land and the food was in the women's hand. This gave them a strong position in matriarchal times in the Neolithic area. But when they lost the agriculture, they literally lost the ground beneath their feet. And what was their lot now? Now they started to support the men with their herds. The men guided the herds, but milking them, making cheese, butter, and so on and so on, what all these nomadic people do. And this now became the task of women. And this was a task of servants. They didn't own the herds by themselves. They now started to become servants at the possessions of men. Men had no evil intention, and women also had no intention to become servants. But in the situation of survival, You do all what you can to survive. The next step was when men moved around more and more with their tracks, 
Women were sitting on the wagons with the children and became more and more passive, mm. only doing just servant work. And men were strong, they were riding, they were keeping the cattle. This created a misbalance and imbalance in society because women lost the economy, they lost this, and men had not the idea that they would dominate, but herding was, even in matriarchal societies, often the task of men. And women did agriculture. But when women lose agriculture and men were enlarging the herds, then they become more and more dominant because they more and more have the economy in their hands. And it sounds like violence became a currency in this economy. Yeah, there's two. A trust between men, between different tribes. They were conflicting. But this brought about still another step in patriarchalization for the women, children, and older people were dependent on their chiefs and men who had to win against the other tribes. So now the pattern of the chief, the charismatic leader, and his followers arose who had to fight for their tribe against the other tribes. And this was a changing of the formerly egalitarian patterns of the society. Now chiefs and his elite people came up, and I asked myself, why did the other people accept this and tolerate this? It was not their formal way of life. But there is an easy explanation. If you are in danger of losing your cattle, your life, and all, then you trust in the big man, the strong man, who will do this job for you to protect you. And of course, he became more and more proud, and they even gave him more privileges, especially when he was winning. He got a lot of new privileges. And so step by step, these patriarchal patterns, which we know today, developed, not by bad will, but because it was in this situation of pressure and fight for the existence, and especially the women had to be protected. But if the chief, the leader, and his followers would not win, then the cattle and the women would have been robbed from the other tribe who was victorious. So women also supported this pattern to be safe. Right. So a willingness to use violence became mm. like a prized characteristic. Yes. Yeah. You see, the violence developed because there was a clutch of these different people and conflict about the rare pastures. And so violence became a mean of survival. And this, of course, had effect for the inner structure of these societies, as I just described. For the violent leader, he was not punished for his violence. He was praised that he was so successful and used weapons and violence. So violence crept in as a new ideal. Which is never good for women. <laughs> never good. Never good for women because they, they didn't have the weapons. The weapons were in the hands of the men in former times as hunting gear and now as weapons to fight, fighting weapons. Anyway, they became more and more dependent. This was the development in the Eurasian Steppe during these thousands of years of desertification. Mm. 
But you wanted to know how it happened in Europe. <laughs> we'll get there. But I do think it's interesting. It is such a common myth, I think, that private ownership began with agriculture, which is very wrong. You make a point in your book that private property really began with cattle as private property. That's true. I think this is a new ideology today among archaeologists and other people that with agriculture and Neolithic time, patriarchy began. Any argument which is given for this view is wrong because no archaeological evidence truly exists for this. And I think these people project patriarchal ideas on Neolithic times because they do not know how matriarchal societies function. That private property is not possible in matriarchal societies. And we have a lot of evidence that in Neolithic times, the society was matriarchal. So there was not the question about private property. They would not have tolerated this. But archaeologists, the most of the time, unconsciously project patriarchal patterns into history. Some do it consciously. So I think they didn't know it better. And so they distort facts they have from Neolithic times to project this ideology onto to the society. Yeah. I think it's interesting this connection you make between keeping cattle became a whole way of, of life and, and economy. And breeding was obviously like a super important part of keeping cattle. And that that somehow translated during the patriarchalization of these societies, like it translated into how women were treated. Can you talk about that connection a little bit? I want to answer to your former question, how private property came oh, up. Oh, sure, 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 sure. sure. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. Yeah. How did this happen? Well, usually they regarded also cattle as common property, property of the clans and property of the whole society. And so the men were trusted to do this for the whole society. But how did it happen that private property came up there? This has to do with the pattern of the charismatic leader who found the new solution for survival. Yeah? This happened only in very few societies. The other who had not the solution, maybe they perished. But this, this one, this society who had invented this could survive and spread. And the person who was so important was the one who, who invented some new technology. And when he did his job better and better, one of the first privilege he got is that he could keep a part of the cattle for himself. And when he was a good breeder, he could enlarge his private part. But this was against Major are rules and egalitarian. People had this deep in the heart of egalitarian rules. Then he started to give gifts to his followers, gifts of cattle, to bind them close to himself. And so he started to manage his property as a mean of politics. Yeah? Then it started. It was very slowly development. It was not only one person, but maybe a, a whole range of persons who did that until this pattern was right. And the people accepted it because over generations they became used to these patterns. And so private property started in the hands of the chiefs. And 
cattle can become very easily private property because you can count the individual cattle, the cows and oxes and bulls. And then these chiefs started to use their property to appease the people. And they made festivals and gave a lot of their private property to everybody at the festivals. And everybody was happy and he could go on in his way. Yeah. And whoever gave the most or was most generous. Yes, he was generous, but behind this scene, he had private property. Yeah. Yeah. So you see how major patterns slowly were changed into something else so that the people could not quickly look through this, how dangerous this could be. Even the chiefs had not not a bad intention. They only wanted to be strong for their people and to be generous. So no one had the idea that what we are doing now is patriarchy. No, it was survival and being on good foot with the people. Patriarchy as a conscious model started later. So we are still in the development of survival and mutual acceptance, what is happening, and so on and so on. Mm. But a hierarchy began to form where there were certain people a little on bit, top. Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit stratified, but, but you see, hierarchy is when the chief and elite could set their special position in stone. This was not possible at this time, for the leader had always to prove his capacity to protect the people, and if he couldn't do he was upseated and maybe another one did it. This was a little bit stratifying the society, but not a state of hierarchy. Hierarchy is started when the leader and his followers could form dynasty, so that they were always at the top. Now let us look at the geographic situation. The Eurasian steppe stretched until to the Black Sea, and people noticed these wonderful green passes along the rivers, like the Volga and the Danube. And so, of course, they invaded this country too, and now they, they started to be in Europe, the Hadamorias. But also around the Black Sea, there were a lot of former matriarch societies, very fertile country. Today it's Ukraine. They, they also tried to invade this, but there existed already people before them. Very strong and wonderful developed high cultures like Kukutini cultures and others, which Maria Gimbutas has described and discovered so excellently. And now imagine their situation. They came as herder warriors and see high culture developed with a lot of skills. What shall they do? Shall they go back to their deserts, or shall they try to capture the um, land away from these people? But if they want to take the land away, they have to fight against these agricultural societies. And they started with this, at first with smaller ones and later with bigger ones. Now starts a new situation in history. This is conquest. Now they started to conquer, to conquer other people. And in this situation, now a true uh, hierarchy developed. So the conquered people were now subdued and became the servants. Either they were killed completely, or they became the servants for the new masters to work for them the land. We have both situations. Imagine the situations they have conquered a rich culture, put themselves at the top, 
So what to do? They had to keep these people down by the use of warriors, of weapons, of suppression. Now they had in their consciousness that they had done a wonderful deed. They were now the elite, the better people, because they could do this by violence and weapons. And the other one was stupid because they don't have violence and don't have weapons and work for them. Now the idea began that they had invented or created a wonderful society, patriarchy, patriarchal patterns, which were wonderful for themselves, but very disastrous for the suppressed people. This is the point when patriarchy began. And we know all this uh, ideology, like the others are not humans, or they are barbarians. This went on in history, patriarchal history, on and on. They are not worth to be regarded, and so on. And the elite and the king or whatever, they are always the better people, the true people. And now they cemented their hierarchy. They must cement it, otherwise they would have been lost in the majority of suppressed people. So now they cemented their hierarchy, creating the dynasty, and so on. This is the true starting point of patriarchy. Right, and so many things. So, so you have an invader class and a suppressed native class yes, yes. who's exploited by this invader class. Mm, sounds yes. like America. This is a basic pattern of each patriarch society. Yeah. Now you have two layers, but in the development of patriarchy, they have below the many, many layers of suppressed peoples. Yes. Not only the conquered people, but also women, poorer men, colored men, and so on. They are all below the elite and are not, not true humans. We know that. Obviously, this wasn't a one-go, you know, one-time thing. This this took place literally over thousands and thousands of years, but in distinct waves. Now we are talking about the situation in Europe. This is waves of invaders from the steppe. And this is the work, the excellent work of Maria Gingutas, who found this out. And she described the effects of these waves of warrior herders from the steppes on Europe. As she said, the first wave only could um, establish these two layer society close to the Black Sea and East Europe, Hungaria, and along the Danube. It, it doesn't reach very far. And all the rest of Europe remained what it was before different matriarch societies. The second wave was more disastrous because now, via the Danube, these new patriarchal patterns and this culture stretched until Middle Europe, Austria, Germany, and so on. And the third wave patriarchalized all of Europe in the end. The battle axe warriors really um, stretched until Western France and so on. The latest area in Europe where the British islands where they arrived, of course, there are different types of waves and I do not want to go into the details because this is really very meticulous archaeological work to bring this out. But Europe was invaded by these stepperhards and through thousands of years, they spread more and more into Europe and subdued all the different major art societies there. And sometimes they not even subdued them, but killed them and took their pastures and went on and left behind burnt land, nothing else, all destroyed. This happened in Greece, this happened also elsewhere. It was a disastrous and catastrophic situation lasting 
a long time. Yeah. And now we have DNA science that literally shows shows this. Yes, it was wonderful when the DNA technology, some um, very intense researcher from Scandinavia did this, which confirmed Maria Gimbuta's findings. For she was so heavily attacked for her work by the archaeological establishment. But then the DNA proved that the Indo-European way came with males only. These are the herder warriors on horseback and invaded many European countries. And what is interesting from the suppressed people, only female DNA was left and the male DNA disappeared completely. And the female DNA mixed later with the, with the conquerors. I think the fact is easy to understand. They conquered such an agricultural high culture and killed all the males because the males could be dangerous for them and took women by, by force, married them by force and raped them because as an all-male conquering group, they could not survive without women. They need children. <laughs> so the women were important for them. Mm. But the women then were nothing else than, uh, how to say, than property. Yeah. Like the cattle were their private property, women who were taken by force are now their property. And this debased women deeply in their status in the societies. They were the property at first of the chiefs. He could take as many as he want, and then of his warriors. And they did it by force, and then they had children with these women. But step by step, they have to deal with the children. They cannot continue with this violence against the daughters and so on. Anyway, women and their sons and daughters belonged to them as private property, and they did with them what they wanted. But an interesting fact is the more you see these DNA waves going to Western Europe, the more the indigenous of the indigenous European people, the DNA became stronger. For in East Europe, it was the first wave or the first rapists, and their sons went on, and they also needed women, so also they took again indigenous women, and so on and so on. No, they, they were not only Indo-European. They were all already a mixed people. <laughs> So you have really this shift in the situation. But anyway, women now became part of the suppressed people, became part of the property, and we can see in archaeological facts as the huge graves, the Kurgan graves of the chiefs that they did with their women and used what they wanted when they died. The women died with them and were sacrificed and were buried in their graves and very often, also the children of the women and some servants and so on. So this practice of human sacrifice came up and it started at first against women. Part of the patriarchal patterns. Yeah, it's yeah. part of it. Yeah. But which never ended. As we know from such practices as in traditional India, sati of women, the, the widow of the husband, it never ended. No? Yeah. But yeah. it started there at first. So some cultures were invaded and defeated. Some cultures mm -hmm. defended themselves. Yes. How do we know this and how do we see this and what happened? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, when we want to find out what really happens, this clash of cultures of patriarchal invaders and the traditional matriarch cultures, I partly rely on archaeology, but partly I rely also on mythology. For mythology has, they are not fanciful stories, they have an historical core, myths. And we have a lot of myths, for example, from the British Islands, the people later called the fairy people, yeah, that they defended themselves on horse. This means they adopted also the, the weapons of the conquerors and defended themselves. And uh, we have mythological tales. They are hidden in the medieval romances, but when we look closer, they are really very old sources who show that they mounted uh, resistance, armed resistance against invaders, old major people, uh, united and fought against them. And sometimes they were even successful, but then the next wave of invaders came and the next one and so on. But this is always a difficult situation for a major art society. We know it from the modern situation, how the Iroquois people fought against the white invasion. For when the men of a major art society fight against the invaders, they also need coordinating the warriors and the strategy and so on and so on. This is not good for a major art society because now men and the warriors become so important. And the role of women is also then diminishing in the old egalitarian major art structures. Are they matched? Not on purpose, but involuntarily in this situation of fighting against the invader. So these matriarch societies who came in this conflict, I think they were torn by these pressures. They were torn apart, literally torn apart, and in any way they were defeated and subdued. As I said before, we have this modern example with Iroquoian people who mounted resistance for 200 years against the invasion of the white, and in the end they collapsed. And we have a similar historical situation with the British Isles and these myths who say the same. That eventually the force was overwhelming. Yes. Well, you see, the invaders, for them, violence was the point of tradition. And they were so skilled in fighting because they did it for hundreds of years. But for the people defending themselves, the major other people, this was a new development, even if all mythological tales say that they were excellent and they were so brave. The men tried to defend their cultures with a lot of courage and bravery. But in the end, they couldn't stand this harshness and cruel violence of the invaders. They were not raised in this way. They were not trained in this way. It's such a sad fact, but uh, it was like that in history. And I mean, we are living in the results of that right now. Right. Where, I mean, I'm just looking at Israel, Palestine, or, or anywhere we look, really. Anywhere we look in patriarchal history is full of always the same of this kind. We have two questions. How did the patriarchy come up? But the other question, which I find equally important, how did it spread so far? Well, it started in small, tiny cells. And how could, could it spread worldwide? And the answer is easy, but very sad. It could spread by violence, 
by warring strategies, by skilled warriors and by emperors who did nothing else but creating a military society and so on. This was the Roman Empire, this was the Assyrian Empire, and I do not want to go in modern times. It's always the same. Yeah. We know it. We know it. We know it. But it is important that mm -hmm. militarization and patriarchy go hand in hand. Yes, right. And the dominance of men has to do that men have the monopoly on weapons. In any patriarch society, women don't have the weapons. Men have the weapons. And so the men are the military force, guided by their chiefs, kings, emperors, and so on. And this makes women everywhere so weak. Sometimes I ask why they even have women in these societies. Because by women, they create the next generation of their next warrior, sons, and so on. Women are only there, like cattle, to bring the young people, to tend the young people and the young sons, which are taken away by the fathers and trained in weapons to go, go ahead with violence. Yeah, so maybe we can go back to that question about how there is a connection between keeping cattle and what happened to women. And yeah. I want to go into the cultural heritage we have of monogamy, the importance of virginity, all of those types of cultural heritage that we now have. How did that get started? Yeah, this, this is a very important, interesting question about which we should know as women. Imagine the situation that this herder warrior group subdued another society, another agricultural society, but they don't have women, but they need women. Otherwise, they would die out in the next generation. So they had to rape them, but the women would not stay with these people, of course. So they had to lock the women in, that they would stay with them. The main reason is they needed women to get their real sons. Sons who should be like their fathers, warlike chiefs, trained in with weapons and glorious winning every battle. It's, it's the ideal of the son. Yeah? Right. So, so they needed the women, even the women of the subdued society, the oppressed society. So they had to to write to women because these women didn't want to be with them voluntarily. But then they had to lock the women in that they would stay with them and be as the sons, the real sons. And that every chief could recognize that he is a father of the son, so develop the father line. He had to create monogamy for the women. She should not have any lover, nor any other man, otherwise he could not be sure that the sons, the daughters don't count, but the sons are true, his blood sons. So the women were locked in, they were observed and guarded by his warriors. This was the beginning of our praised monogamy. This monogamy is only valid for women, not for the men. And this is a situation which always went on in patriarchy, even in, in modern marriage where the women have to be true and, and good wives and so on. Now we have it not by force, we have it by ideology, but the men do what they want, of course. The basis of the monogamy is the creation of the father line, which is not possible 
if the women are not locked in and are not forced to stay all her life with one man. Some people say, and me too, the mother line is natural, but it's the birth line. Always clear. But the father line is artificial. It is by law and by force. For it's not natural. And virginity is the same point. A man needs a woman as a virgin. If she would not be a virgin, she could have children from another man, and he was not sure about his father line. So she must be a virgin and guarded by her brothers, punished by death if she doesn't do. As a virgin, he was given to one man, and he continued to guard and observe her. And if she was an adulteress, she was also punished with death. Because now he could not be sure any longer about his true sons in the father line. The creation of the father line was not a wonderful idea to have good fathers and so on. Maybe today we have good fathers, maybe. But it was a matter of force, of violence against women from the very beginning, of power of men over women. This is the point. And making women a means of producing sons. Yes. So an instrument. An instrument. Yeah. And where this instrument was born to a father who then passed her on from father's ownership to husband's ownership in order to produce more sons. Yes, yes. Daughters were his pawn to give them to other men whom he wanted to honor and give a daughter, give a woman. Like cattle was the pawn to create good relationships with his followers, so he used these daughters in the same way. She had not to have an own will whom she wanted to marry. Can one conceptualize this as the beginning of misogyny, the beginning of domestic violence, perhaps? Of course. For this creation of the father line was, from the very beginning, domestic violence against women, against women as girls who must be chased and the father was keeping her and later as, as wife of the husband, and then she was a widow, and was useless to him because he died, and she was killed and sacrificed and put into his grave. This from the very beginning till to the end of the life of a woman violence. And misogyny, of course, these patriarchs regarded women as nothing better than their cattle. This is misogyny <laughs> in the worst way. Right, a life of social humiliation. Yeah. The cattle has no own will, and she was guarded and kept like cattle. And there is a very interesting linguistic hint at that. The English word wedding, you know, wedding means marrying. And the Indo-European word wed means guiding cattle. So you know what wedding means. I love that. <laughs> The secrets that are sort of hidden in our language is very, very interesting. Yeah, very clear. Of course, today, monogamy and virginity is more moralized and kept as an ideology by the churches and different religions, how a good woman should be and so on. It's not direct force, but it's still ideological force and structural force. If a woman does have her own way and lives as she wants to live. She has difficulties to exist. I mean, there are cultures in the world where she wouldn't survive a day. <laughs> yes, yes. 
We have still classical patriarchal cultures in the world. And in our Western civilizations, which are more liberal, women have all these patterns in their mind, many of them, and they act according to these patterns, which are patriarchal, which they have been indoctrinated from girlhood on, what, what is a good wife and how it goes on and so on, and one lover and one man and the romantic love and all these things, they continue in the same way because it's not direct force, but it's their own cycle that they accept it all this and continue. This is patriarchal patterns without knowing it, that it's patriarchal and giving them not always a happy and easy life. So these waves took place and patriarchalization became sort of institutional, formalized, more of a bigger systems. And you talk about one particular development that is really interesting is irrigation, the role of irrigation in this development. Yes, we often hear in the explanations of patriarchy that some new invention brought patriarchy. For example, the invention of Plowing with strong oxen should have brought patriarchy about it and ask me how, how? Because the men and oxen were so strong, that's not the reason that patriarchy came about. It's very simplistic. Mm. The same as any other technology, the same with irrigation. Many writers think that in Mesopotamia, patriarchy came about by the invention of irrigation. But I didn't find any trace of this. Well, the development was much more complex. It's again this pseudo-explanation that one technological invention brought patriarchy about. So the situation is more complex. We have in Mesopotamia, especially at the northern tributaries of the Euphrates and Tigris, very old and far-spread matriarchal cultures, which has been found out by archaeologists they found egalitarian architectures, they found goddess figurines, they found sculpts and painted vases, all what we know, the characteristics of major art societies. And Mesopotamia itself at that time was swampy and full of mosquitoes. It was not habitable. Nobody could live there. But later, when the Climate changed and Mesopotamia became, the land between the two rivers became drier and cooler. People moved more and more along the two rivers southwards because now it became habitable. And of course, the farmers, the matriarchal farmers, invented irrigation because it was very easy to water their fields because the Euphrates is higher than the land below. They only had to make a small canal from the river down to the fields, and the water came down on itself. Very easy, but it is irrigation. And in this way, these matriarchal cultures which lived at first at the shores of the Euphrates and Tigris did a simple way of irrigation, which helped them to develop agriculture even in this very hot and dry country. And you don't see any trace of patriarchy with them. So the reason must be different. And it was different for when the surrounding countries, surrounding Mesopotamia became more and more deserts and more drier, the more and more people tried to, to immigrate into the green lands between these two rivers. So I call it crowding in the paradise. It's <laughs> a short formula. These 
crowds of people who came in organizing this was the question now. And it's very interesting to see how in basically agricultural society, like Mesopotamia always was, changed into patriarchy. No herder warriors, no riders on horseback, nothing like that. But the problem was organization, the many, many people who came in. So they had to dig always more and more canals and to water more and more fields. And this must be organized. And they invented a very intelligent system of administration. The most important administrators cared for the main canals, others cared for the smaller canals, others cared for the little canals. So they created a hierarchy of people following the hierarchy of canals, a natural hierarchy of canals, without any bad intention. They not even thought about hierarchy, but it was there. In the beginning, they did not misuse this hierarchy. They even had a king who was responsible for this whole network of canals and administrators, and he was responsible for the well-being of the land. But what is important, as it were major art of societies, they had temples with priestesses, and in difficult times, the surplus which was hoarded by the priestesses, not by the king, in difficult times of famine and so on, they again gave the surplus away to the people. So it was a perfect, good economy, a balanced economy with no patriarchal surplus who took it for his own. This was a way until the patriarchal invaders came in, like the Akkadian people, and they changed the situation. They conquered the Sumerian cities, put their king at the top of them, and introduced patriarchy and patriline. Akkadians were desert people who came possibly from the Arabian Peninsula, had changed already in the long course of history into patriarchal people, and they conquered Mesopotamia. And now the process of becoming more and more patriarchal started. The Sumerian cities fought against them, but they were not so strong. And then these cities who were patriarchalized started to fight against each other because always more people from the surroundings who became more and more dry desert came in. And now the city became bigger and fought against each other for the rare agricultural land. Women lost their land. And we have a situation like we have it sometimes today. The peasant people fled into the cities because from the tiny plot of land, they could not survive. In the cities that became the poorest, sometimes even slaves, the situation of desertification went on. And even the two rivers, Euphrates and Tigris, had less water, but the people became more and more. But the land didn't increase. And so out of this situation developed a very strict state hierarchy, patriarchalized by influence from the outside. The cities were competing and developing wars of weapon and the king of weapon. And then a wonderful situation, ironically, developed the one who unified them all. This was Sargon of Akkad, he unified them by force, making a wonderful, peaceful empire out of them all because they stopped fighting against each other. 
what he now was the first true emperor in history, and instructed the people to make his empire bigger and bigger and bigger. And he created the first military empire of the world. What I found so strange when I read this history is that modern archaeologists find this development wonderful. Finally, we have culture. Finally, we have the first cities. We have true state building. We have true rulers. How wonderful. But no one of them said how patriarchal and suppressive this was for the other people. So I felt the urge to put this history topside down to bring about the truth behind this. Therefore, I <laughs> got deep into this matter of Mesopotamia, which was also difficult for me. I really appreciate that because I think we do idealize empire yes. a great deal. Still today. Still, Still today. today, very much, yeah. very much. We idealize the superpowers like the US and China and Russia. How wonderful. And this started with Sargon of Akkad. Later, the Assyrians came and they were still worse and still more cruel. And later, the Romans, oh, wonderful patriarchal history. As if the idea behind it is that state is a wonderful invention of humanity. And before the people were not able to invent a state, yeah, but matriarchal people don't need a state. They never created it because they don't want to have a hierarchical society and went on egalitarian terms. But this is never understood by all these people who praise patriarchal history. That's right. And this is in spite of Europe and that part of Asia was consumed by war, warlike conditions since that time. Like it's never, yes. it's never stopped. <laughs> Since the time humanity believes that we have to live in states, otherwise we would kill each other, the chaos would reign, which is completely wrong. And humanity believes that it's good when an emperor brings peace, like in the Roman Empire, Emperor Augustus brought Pax Romana, peace, Roman peace, to all the peoples around the Mediterranean. But what was mean to Pax Romana, it was conquest of all the people around the Mediterranean area and forced and subdued by the Roman military apparatus. This is the kind of peace which patriarchy brings. <laughs> peace, peace by force. Peace by force. Yes, mm, <laughs> it's mm. true. Peace by oppression. Yeah. yeah. But you see, the ideology is always still virulent today that it is good to have a unified states and unified big big superpowers because they bring peace to so many people. But the conditions and the price, the costs of this is never taken into account. And also, and I know we've touched on this before, but in the end it's not sustainable because the sort of the core principle of empire is endless expansion, maximizing its power never endingly. So that's not sustainable. Yes, when we look, since Sargon from Akkad, they do not spread because they are so wonderful, but because the people at their borders feel threatened. And of course, mount resistance. Then the emperor finds himself threatened, his empire is threatened, so he has to fight the people at the borders and to broaden the borders. Okay, then he has next people at the borders, next enemies, 
And very often they invent new enemies who want to destroy the wonderful empire. So they have always to bring war to the borders. And in this way, by continuous violence, the empire is growing and growing. And in the center, the people are told, we have to do this because there are everywhere and around us enemies who are threatening us and want to destroy the empire. And everybody nods his head and collaborates. But this is not sustainable because these empires at the borders, you have always war, which is always catastrophic. And at the center, the people must be more and more oppressed to bring the means and the financial means to support the always continuous war uh, adventures of the emperor. They have to bring more taxes to more food, more weapons are so important. And this goes its way until this empire breaks down, mostly from the center. The Roman Empire also broke down because at the center the people were overburdened and the elite was decadent, so it broke down. It was not only the people at the borders like the Germanic tribes and Celtic tribes who brought it down. It came together. The decadence at center and the wars at the borders came together and it broke down. After maybe some centuries, it broke down. Then the next empire developed by wonderful leaders and broke down. And the next empire and so on. Through whole patriarchal history, this is total contrary to sustainability and costs millions, millions of lives and culture and environment damage. Yeah, the damage is, is vast everywhere we look. When we look at our situation today, we see all the results and effects from this about 4,000 or 6,000 pages of history. And it brought us to the brink of extinction today because the same principle went on, went on, and went on. As you say in the book, patriarchy is based on a wealthy elite at the top and a disgruntled and dissenting bottom. And that causes inevitable strife. It will always cause inevitable strife, like an internal struggle. Whereas if you have an egalitarian society and you make sure everyone's needs are met, you have peace. You don't have mm -hmm. that eternal, internal struggle. Yes, that's very true. For pressure of the power from above always creates counter-violence from below. What we can see with the many revolts and revolutions and upheavals in all patriarchal history, the upheavals of peasants of the lower classes, revolutions, which were very bloody, and in the end, you have the revolutionary man as a new elite. It's never quiet. It is never peaceful. It's always in turmoil and always, you know how to say that? Misery. Yes, always <laughs> the same misery. The people who suffer the most from this misery are women and children. Yeah, because they have no part in this development and are those who have on their shoulders the whole burden of this. And children, yeah, it's astonishing that even children grow up in such situations. Yeah, true. Because women are so strong and care for their children. It's the only reason why children even grow up under patriarchy. 
But in this way, women are, of course, exploited. I wanted to get back to a point that I find interesting that you make in the book, that archaeologically, what you can see in former matriarchal societies who have been overtaken by patriarchal society, there's a huge difference between the culture that they destroyed and the culture that they then, you know, the kind of the overlay. And the peaceful matriarchal culture is refined, sophisticated, artfully developed, whereas the cultural artifacts of patriarchies is rough, utilitarian, uncreative. And I have found that extremely interesting. It's almost like telling us, it's telling us something. Of course, these patriarchal conquerors, they lost parts of their culture because of these survival strategies. They focused and emphasized developing warlike virtues, which make their minds narrow. Culture is not good for war. Huh? Culture makes you soft and weak, and so you have to focus on war. So they lost a big part of their former culture, which they had. And so when they conquered a richly developed agricultural society, which is superior to them, they started to adopt their cultural uh, goods, like religion, like arts, like handicrafts. They adopted this, but changed their meaning. We can see this very easily when we study Greek mythology and know about big father Zeus with his thunderbolt he makes down all resistance in his family. He is a new invention. And his wife, the goddess Hera, which in former times was an independent great goddess, is now subdued like her people are subdued. And now you see that Zeus and his followers have all the technologies which the former culture had, but used them for war and not for cultic religious purpose. I take only one example. His thunderbolt was a cultic instrument and symbol in the former cult of the goddess Hera. But he took it over, an axe, a beautiful axe out of fires, and they took it over and made it into a weapon of war and suppression. This is only a little example to show how they took over the culture of the former people, transformed it into a hierarchy. All the former independent goddesses and gods are now made into the sons and daughters of Jews. So they create a hierarchy which is a mirror image of the society, what happens there. But the mythology contents comes from the older culture, or they took over the handicrafts, like painting, like reading, and now use it to glorify the chief who have all this in his hands. I could give endless examples of this. Which suggests to me that for human creativity to flourish, you must have peace mm. and uh, peaceful conditions, and that when you have a culture that venerates violence and war, you sacrifice creativity and culture. And you sacrifice many parts of the culture. For example, Greece, which were patriarchal, but had adopted a lot of matriarchal materials, so they were mixed. They were richer in cultures than the Roman Empire. When the Roman military empire took over Greece, they simplified the religion, the cults, and the goddesses, because now military were more important than culture. 
you can always see a shift. The more they became military, always a shift into more and more military strategy and weapons, or more and more a loss of culture. Yeah, it's clear. Very clear. Yeah. Not only at the beginning, it goes on today. I wanted to circle back to Amazons, which I know is a sort of a subject of fascination for many, but I think hard to understand. There isn't much good information around this. So I would love for you to explain why it's so hard to sort history from myth and assumptions. We can understand the phenomenon of Amazons only in the context of this huge shift from matriarch society to patriarch. Otherwise, when we look isolated at, at this, we cannot understand or it's romanticized or it's it's ridiculed. I try to understand this phenomenon in the context of the shift and the long-term changing from matriarch societies into patriarchal ones. And in these difficult times of transition, of course, not only the main of major art society mounted resistance with weapons, but also women did this. And this is a phenomenon of the Amazons. Women also fought for their culture. This is common with many cultures and very widespread with the phenomenon that, that women uh, with weapons in the hand joined men to defend their culture is really common. Not only in history, but also when the Spanish Conquerors went to South America, they found also women fighting for the culture against them. But we have to differentiate between warrior women who fight together with their men and Amazons. They were not companions of fighting men. They were a society of their own. And this is different from warrior women. And I started to take this distinction serious, that warrior women can be found everywhere at the site of fighting men. But Amazons created a society of its own. Only women who were able to defend their independence created these societies and defended themselves against their patriarchal surroundings. We have several myths and archaeological evidence in Asia Minor and along the Black Sea. Where they created women-only societies. Women-only. Women-only societies. And so how did they solve the issue of um, procreation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's clear. They have to solve this. <laughs> the origin of these Amazon societies was mostly that these societies were former matriarch societies, were conquered by patriarchal men, matriarchal men killed, and the women made uh, by force into the wives of the patriarchal men. Then the myth tells that these women killed the men. They killed the rapists <laughs> with their own weapons. They killed the forced husbands, which is horrible in patriarchal mind. This is horrible. How can women do this? Huh? So, and then they were fed, fed up with this patriarchal men and decided to stay only among each other and created an all-women society. Of course, they had to solve the problem of procreation. There are different ways how to do it. When they are on an island, they may invite the passing by sailors to have a wonderful honeymoon with them, only for one week or two weeks, and send them away after this. Okay, this is one possibility. This is in the Gagan Sea. There was an island 
is an Amazon society. It's a black sea. They did it in a different way. They had a neighboring people, not patriarchal people, but maybe mixed or in transition or even matriarchal. Then at a special festival, the festival of love, they invited the men from the neighboring people to be their partners, their love companions and celebrate with them wonderful on a special cultic place. After that, they also give them presents and send them home to their mothers and sisters and fathers and so on. Okay. And then when they bore uh, girls and boys, then they kept the girls with them and sent the boys in the age of seven or, or eight back to their father in the other society. This is a common way how Amazon societies manage this problem. They try to have good neighbor neighborhood. Yeah, good relations. Us, yeah, with really good relations, which is for them a peaceful solution. And with the island, when the sailors, of course, they have, could have killed the sailors, but maybe some did. But why should they kill the sailors when they can send them away, far away? In this way, they defended their independence, their freedom. I call this not a full, the matriarchal culture in the full sense, because the men are lacking. But anyway, it's an offshoot of a matriarchal culture, what Amazon societies did. A resistance of sorts. A resistance, yes. But you find so many strange ideas about Amazons, but when you look close to this phenomenon from the societal perspective, it's quite natural and explains all this in an easy way. But of course, nothing is more terrifying for a patriarchal mind to have women who defend their freedoms themselves by breaking the monopoly of men with weapons, having weapons themselves. This is threatening. The scariest thing in the world, you know. Yes. Thank you. It's scariest thing in the world. And they are always telling this is horrible. They are horrible that no woman of their society would have this idea in, in her mind and mount such a resistance. Yeah. That's right. And I don't think it's uh, a coincidence that aggression in women is so feared and derided, is viewed as extremely unacceptable. We should be soft and submissive and feel ourselves inferior, even if women are strong and do a lot of work, work to the most important work in the world, creating new life. But we always should feel as weak. A strong woman, a fighting woman, a woman who, who fights for, for her freedom is not accepted in patriarchal ideology. I wanted to talk a little bit about Crete. I try to do it in short. Okay. We have of of course, during the patriarchalization of Europe, there remained some niches and some cultures who were not patriarchalized so quickly or not fully. And Crete, by the advantage of their isolated situation as an island, Crete could go on very long with its highly developed matriarchal culture until 1600 before our era, which is very late for in the meantime, the surrounding was patriarchalized. And it's very interesting. The researchers do not know how to describe Greece. Some say it was patriarchal. Some say women were important. And some say we don't know. Of course, they do not know what are the matriarchal patterns. But I know some very good studies 
from American uh, researchers who said we can see major archipelagos clearly in Crete uh, with the sharing of the activities. Men were sailors and and women were priestesses and did the handicrafts and the uh, soil and economy of the agriculture belonged to women. This can be seen from archaeological research and historical research and also from the myths. The egalitarian society shared responsibility between women and men. You can clearly see that Minoa and Crete was a highly developed major agriculture. Very, very long. And um, they had a lot of wonderful inventions which were later used by the military class of the Greek. And they had highly developed architecture handicrafts which were also misused later by the warlike Greek. They had a high spirituality where they praised all what is on the earth, animals and plants and the peaceful life of people. When you see Cretan paintings, you to see all this peace and this harmony between the biosphere and humans. You don't see warriors and weapons on these paintings. It's really, really beautiful. This is a wonderful example of the last fully developed nature art culture in Europe. Crete is, yeah. Crete, Minoan Crete. Yeah. Minoan Crete, yeah. Yeah. And how did it end? Yes, it, it was astonishing that they could keep their independence so long. Meanwhile, Greece and Asia Minor were all patriarchalized. But they did it by their high skill of seafaring. Keeping their independence, they were very good traders and brought their cultural goods to other countries which were much estimated. And so they kept their independence. It's a tragedy the way Greece collapsed. And the tragedy came from Mother Earth herself. For the neighboring island of Ziala, today Santorin, which is a volcanic island, exploded. And the whole island was a volcano, and the whole island was blown up into the air and collapsed completely. And this created not only ashes and thunderstorm and all things, but a huge tsunami. And this tsunami destroyed the Cretan culture, which were situated at the northern coast. The Cretan people tried to rebuild their culture, but the disaster of this volcanic eruption affected the whole eastern Mediterranean. The Egyptian plagues, which are described in the Bible, were a result of this. And many harbors and cities along Asia Minor collapsed because of tsunamis. So it lasts a very long time until the area could recover. In this situation, the Indo-European cattle herders and warrior kings who had already settled in Greece took the advantage of the situation and now conquered Crete. They had their eye very long already on this island because it was flourishing and rich and beautiful. But now they took their chance or the, the opportunity and arrived as conquerors on ships and subdued the rest of the Minoan culture and made themselves the kings and the chiefs of this island. They kidnapped the artists and the handicrafts, these killed people and brought them to their own palaces in uh, Greek island and let them build wonderful um, 
residences. So that's how the Minoan culture ended. Yeah. Very, very sad. Mm -hmm. But what is very interesting is Minoan culture had a deep influence, not only on the Eastern Mediterranean, but they also sailed the Western Mediterranean and they sailed around the Spanish and French coast and arrived in the British Islands. We have some linguistic and mythological traces that parts of Minoan sailors and cultures arrived there and formed one of the first early matriarchal high cultures there. So they had a lot, lot of influence on Europe before this culture collapsed. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, there's so much. I don't know how yeah. you keep it all in your head. Well, because I'm so fascinated. You see, I wrote about this, and you have time to think about it a long, long time, so you don't forget it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's only fascinating. To, it is fascinating, yeah. How to say, to change our perspective of history, and now not only this ideology and patriarchy, but to look what is the bottom of all this, and then you get a completely different picture. And uh, I'm so happy that I could change history of culture in parts and bring about a completely new history about how culture developed and what women did in this and how important women created society were in this. This is all silence in patriarchal historiography. This is all silence. That's right. And for us women living today, it is so important to connect to history, to know. Yeah. To know that we were a part of it, but to, to know our part in yes. it. Yes. Even if it is suppressed, even if it is, yeah. even if we were horrendously violated or are forced to live in social humiliation, like it's important to know that too. Yes. We know about our power and capacities. If we see what women created for millennia in history and how long the impact of this creation of women continued under the surface of patriarchy, subcultures, and so on. And you are perfectly right. If women don't have a history, we will not have a future. When we do not know about our history, we continue with patriarchal patterns going on, thinking they are universal and eternal, so we cannot create a new history which gives women an adequate place. So it's important to know about the history and the historical achievements of women so that we know we can create a completely different future than it is imagined today with all this, well, <laughs> it's all this patriarchal yeah. ideas for the future. We don't need them. We can create a different future. And sometimes I say, we will have a matriarchal future or we will have none or we will have no future. Very, very well. I'm glad you ended with that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for thank your you. wonderful interviews. Yeah, thank you so much for talking to me. It's just endlessly fascinating to me, and I don't know how you keep it all in your head. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. 
You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. Mm-hmm.